0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I want to talk to you today from the heart of a pastor, specifically from the heart of a shepherd. I was writing my sermon, doing what I do every week, And as I was writing, the events of this week or last week began to unfold and play itself out like they do. And I'm looking at the words that I'm writing and the study that I'm doing, and we happen to be in Acts chapter 2, and we happen to be in the passage where the Spirit filled the people in the room, and they began to speak with other tongues or languages, and and all of that that's found in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. And I was doing the work, and I was doing the work, and as I was watching I, te- or watching what's going on and I'm working with the text and I'm doing what I, again, do, I began to become more and more frustrated in a sense, that's my, probably a bad choice of words, because I'm thinking about my church, you, and I'm thinking, what, what do they need? What do these people need? I'm seeing Facebook posts, Twitter posts, Instagram posts. Every kind of post under the sun, I'm having conversations with people throughout that week and hearing what's coming from their mouth. And my, my frustration I shared with Matt, Miller, and, and John was I, they don't need a message about what is tongues, but they do need a sense of perspective. Perspective. And so it was with that that I began to think about what I could do, and I shared with them what I was thinking. And Matt just simply said, well, if you're going to do that, let me know, send it to me. And, and if I think it's useful, I'll, I'll have you preach up there. And, and that's what obviously happened. And so that's, that's the reason why we're not in Acts chapter 2 today. We'll be in, Lord willing, Acts 2 next week. But today, as I said, I want to just simply speak to you as a pastor and a shepherd. Now, some of you I have known as young men and women, really as boys and girls. I've watched you grow up. I've watched you graduate from school, get jobs, go to college, perhaps get married and perhaps have children. And there's others in this room that I barely know or none at all. Well, what I hope is that we are all here for one purpose, and that is the name and fame of Jesus Christ, that today we will find, in a sense, our center, where all of us might become settled in our hearts, even as we wrestle and weigh very heavy issues in our mind. I want to be clear, we are watching, in my opinion, open rebellion in our nation that will carry heavy and horrible consequences over time. We are watching a media that twists truth, speaking, as the psalmist says in Psalm 94, arrogantly. They are pouring forth speech that does not uphold truth, but rather promotes wickedness. We see politicians and judges who love power and prestige, but they do not love justice. They're double minded, they're shifting their votes and their decisions in whichever way the power goes. Gone is a day where the preponderance of people of this nation are driven by key constitutional ideals. Now, instead, it is the will of whatever wind is blowing at the time. And so for months, we have had fear-mongering and power-grabbing occur over a virus that has proven not to be the great horror it was thought to be. Meanwhile, whole economies are shattered while the jackals come in to devour whatever is left. We have watched court decisions go the way of the fool, truth and justice and the rule of law are abandoned instead for clever workaround ideas that take freedom from people in ever increasing increments. We are watching an entire movement that claims to be for racial justice. And as it comes into prominence, we discover that, in fact, it's got nothing to do with justice whatsoever. We watched an election that shows so much fraud, and yet time and time again, our representatives and our judges not only refused to investigate the illegalities, but in many situations openly mocked those who called for them. That doesn't bother me. Well, it does. But that's not my problem. In all of this sits the church. And in it, there are those who have become self appointed evangelical leaders or leaders of various denominations who are tweeting and pontificating over the state of affairs. And make no mistake. This is true of every side. So whatever side you think I'm railing on right now, it's not. It's your side. It's our side. It's every side. You go into a brief foray into the world of Twitter, and you will reveal an ugly reality where leaders within the church are literally hurling invectives back and forth over their views and the events that are unfolding before us. It has gotten to the point that I deleted Twitter the other day because I found myself being drawn into it in a manner that is not proper for a slave of Christ. In fact, I want to state to you publicly that I and the leaders here at Missio Day Fellowship recoil, recoil, we recoil At the smarmy words of many so-called leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we belong, we recoil. These leaders who sit silent as cities burn throughout the year of 2020, but then immediately pontificate and decry the great horror of what supposedly happened in the capitol. I want you to know that they do not represent this church, and that in fact and in truth they do not even have authority or influence in this church, and that we categorically reject their methods and we reject their efforts. In fact, we actually represent one of the many churches in the Southern Baptist Convention pushing back against that. Beloved, I am weary of listening to and reading endless talks about how the Christian truly shows his love for his neighbor because he wears his mask or he votes for a certain person. I am also full of anger. When I talk to a believer about a certain candidate's open justification of abortion, And those Christians listening smirk and chide me about how social justice is just as important even though those who are promoting the social justice actively promote the extension of abortion. This ought not to be. I have watched literally with my eyes police endangered, wounded, and killed And all the while, many in the church just tisk it away as they speak of the evils of the police. To the point that now our brothers and sisters who are officers, but also are believers, are hard-pressed to find a place they can come and just worship. This ought not to be. For months... I have heard leaders in churches preach patience and tolerance and safe places for those who are in open rebellion, that retreat and compromise are the words of the council. And somehow in this, I was to march at the same time and raise my fist and my voice. I was told by people that the riots were the voice of the unheard. And that the gospel commands us to lean in and listen. And now I see those same people telling us to combat the so-called conspiracy theories that contributed to that mob violence in the Capitol. Beloved, I could go on and on and on. But I cannot and I will not. I say those things not to stir you up, but to try to get you to understand, first of all, where I'm at and what I see as a pastor. And I'm not just speaking in some echo chamber or in some vacuum. I must not vent, though, and I must not vomit up my disgust with people on every side of this issue, and that's the part I'm afraid will be missed, on every side of this issue, and on every side of the problems and the threats that confront us. Because first of all, I am a pastor, I am a servant of Christ, and actually the word for servant is a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and if you name Jesus Christ yourself, you too are his slave. And so I have to speak to you not first as American, not first as a man, not first as a conservative, but I must speak to you as a slave of my Lord. We have a great challenge that every Christian in America faces today. There are moments Frankly, that are watershed moments in our lives, moments in which everything changes as a result of something, where things are divided and never the same again. You may know what the continental divide is, you may not. I lived among the Rockies, which is the continental divide in America. And depending on where your raindrop falls, and it can literally fall one inch or another, it will inevitably end up in a different ocean. It's forced to. It has no choice. It lands on one side of the divide or another, and it must necessarily go that way. And I think that what we are going to find is that 2020 and 2021 are watershed moments in the United States, but also for the American church. Lines have been drawn, beloved, Don't miss this. Lines have been drawn that will not be easily erased. Matt and I are convinced that they won't be erased. And there are consequences coming that you and I can't even conceive right now. And so as a pastor then, and as a slave to Christ, what... Must I consider, or what must I call the people here to consider, or to quote Francis Schaefer, how should we then live? Well, I only have one thing I can never tell you, and that is open your Bibles. And so this time, open your Bibles, if you would, instead of Acts to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verses 1 through 17 here, now the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, And in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, it did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. May the Lord bless his word. This is a very well-known passage. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know it. In this, we have a blueprint, if you will, on how a Christian ought to think about the current situation before us and your personal response. Unless you have been elected into some office or you possess some type of an ability to create change, you probably will not have major impact in this nation on policy and procedure and the future, but you will still have a task given to you by your Lord. How ought you to think? How ought I to think? How ought Missio Dei to think? We have so many of you who are here from other churches. We want to keep pressing this upon you so that you understand that, that if you're coming here and you want to make this your home, you're welcome. But this is the home, and we're not asking you to try to make it a different home. This is what we're about. We want all of this to be driven into our soul until it becomes literally the heartthrob of what we are. I will argue that there are six, at least, six exhortations present here that will guide each of the Christians in this room and beyond this room through the many challenges of the day. Say it a different way, six admonishments that Paul gives to us to confront our emotions, our fears, and our thoughts. In what is really a new world before us. So, with that in mind, let me start simply with the first exhortation or admonishment. In verse one, I just want you to understand, beloved, that it is not wrong for you to love your nation, it is not wrong in some sick, twisted way going on right now, is that if you express a fear for what's happening in your nation or, or a frustration with what's happening or whatever it might be, you are now labeled a Christian nationalist and somehow that is something to be reviled. Bull, in the deep theological terminology that I possess. That's not true. There is absolutely nothing wrong for you to love your nation. Paul does Notice the them in verse 1. My prayer for them, my heart's desire, meaning you strip away Paul and you see what is it that causes his heart to move and to, and to ache and to motivate him. It's it's them. Who are them? Well, the them is found back in verse 31. Of chapter 9, and it's Israel, his people. Not us, his people. And you go back a little bit further to the beginning of chapter 9, and you tell me if you cannot see his deep love and burden for his nation. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service." And promises. I wish I could go to hell, is what he is saying. If they could be saved, he looks at his nation and he weeps. He looks at his nation and he identifies himself as a fellow Israelite. He yearns for them, he aches for them, he wants them to do well. He loves his nation. This is a nation blessed in ways that are beyond anything you can conceive that this nation has ever had from God. I really do believe that many in our, of us think somehow that we are the most blessed nation of all time, and that's simply not true. Nation of Israel is the most blessed and will always be that. They were the ones among all the nations in all of the world that received the word of God. They were the only one that God made a covenant with. They were given the temple, the priests, and the sacrifice so that they might be able to rightly worship and be related to him, that their sins that destroyed them would be resolved. They were the ones that were given the prophets that could speak to them truth and also rebuke them when they were in error. And yet, in spite of all that blessing, they wandered away. They listened to every false prophet under the sun who spoke good things that were simply not true, but they wanted to hear them. They were comforted when they should have been rebuked. And they have now entered into what is now 2,500 years of God's judgment and hardship or hardening. 2,500 years they have been under his hardening and judgment because of their sin. Wave after wave after wave of judgment as a nation has been on them. They have been conquered and reconquered and conquered again, scattered everywhere, which is actually the point of Acts 2 about the tongues. Everywhere they scattered Paul is thinking about that judgment and it's only been a few hundred years, just a few hundred years, and his heart is broken for them. And so I ask myself, is is it not wrong for me, or is it wrong or is it not right for me, rather, to mourn for my nation? I love it in spite of the religious leaders who look at me and, and kiss their tongue and whatever, they say, no, 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 you don't want to be that nationalist. No, I will mourn for my nation. It too was once a beacon of freedom that a world saw little, or in a world that saw little freedom. Over the Hundreds of years that we have been around, we have fed the world, rescued countless through our interventions, we have shown great generosity to the nations of the world. It is our nation that has become the source of so much good through the grace of God. A nation established, actually, and it was a wrong goal because they approached it wrongly, but it was nonetheless a goal that they established a nation to promote a Christian faith, They wanted to establish the true national witness to the other nations. I disagree with the concept because it is not correct, but I appreciate it nonetheless. It was to be a place to worship in freedom, a place to promote righteousness, and the blood of countless men and women have been spilt on the shores of nations throughout throughout this entire world in pursuit of helping other nations come to freedom too. But perhaps the greatest thing that this nation has ever done is the reality that millions upon millions upon millions of people have heard the gospel because of the unfettered church that was able to worship in freedom could then go and send forth untold number of missionaries throughout the world to speak of Jesus Christ. And now, now we watch false prophets rise up into pulpits throughout the land. They speak evil things as if they are good and right. They endlessly lecture people into turning away from that freedom. Our ways are filled with injustice across the spectrum of race and gender. That's all we care about, race and gender. And meanwhile, we destroy the life of one who seeks to create a spreader dam in Montana. Most of you, if not all of you, have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm from the West, and I personally know of a Montana rancher On his land, where he built a simple spreader dam, and all that does is when it rains, the rain flows off quickly. But if you create this simple dam that's a temporary thing, it spreads out the water and it creates a shallow pond for a short time, days, but it allows the cattle to come and water. And he did it, and our government crushed him. Crushed him. Meanwhile, That same government encourages that we pump puberty blockers into the veins of our children in the name of freedom. Can we not weep? Should we not weep? I think we should. We should ache, we should think, we should pray, and we should seek the Lord in His Word. We live in a nation that has completely lost its way. But I want you to notice, beloved, look back at verse 1. I want you to see something that we see the heartbeat of Paul for this sinning, evil, rebellious nation. What is it? Is it that they shake off the fetters of the Romans? Is it that they regain their freedom as a nation? Is that they do this or that with their economy? What is it? What is his burden for that nation? Look at your Bibles. It is their salvation. More on that in a moment. In verses two through four, we have the second exhortation. You and I can have easily misplaced zeal. We can have misplaced zeal. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Why? Because they don't know about God's righteousness, so they seek to establish their own. And they fail to understand that Christ must be their righteousness. Now the zeal of the Jew was very great, beloved. They were hard to govern. In fact, nobody wanted to be their governor because they were prone to riot at the drop of a hat. And it was that zeal, that burning fervor that drove them to also utter lies as false witnesses at the trial of Jesus Christ. It led to the cries to crucify Jesus. It led to the jeering and the spitting and the beating by all of those around him. All of that was zeal. You want to see the zeal of America? Just look at Twitter. Look at the videos. Remember Kenosha burning. That's zeal. But the problem with Israel was it was without knowledge. Now, that word knowledge there, it's not just general knowledge. It's not just theoretical knowledge, the knowledge that you learn within a classroom setting. This is a strengthened form of the word to know, which speaks of that which is experienced and grasped and understood. It's the difference of, of reciting the facts of something and knowing them in their fullness. The problem is that they pursued all of this with zeal, whatever it is that they were pursuing, but they missed the point because they somehow missed what mattered, what was actually true. And my concern is that that might be true of us. I could preach this, frankly, in any church in America and before any group, and it would still stand. What are you zealous for, beloved? Beloved. What is it that you burn for? And I don't want to hear it. I want you to think about what do you burn for? Is it social justice? Fine, fine. I don't care. You want to burn for that? Burn. But it will not stand. It cannot because it is fatally flawed at its core. You say, that's not me. I am zealous for personal freedom and liberty. I burn for that. Fine. But it too is fatally flawed and cannot stand. And in fact, our nation proves it right now. What is it that you're breathing smoke and fire over? What is it that has your fists clenched And your heart racing. What are you weeping over? What dominates your dreams? What dominates your conversations right now? Think about that. Think. Be honest. What dominates you? Well, the Jew was so zealous, and he failed most miserably. Verse 3 tells us that they would not submit to God. That was their real problem. They would not submit to God. They would not submit to his ways, his righteousness. Why? Because they didn't know it. They were ignorant of it, and yet they had ample opportunity to know it because they had prophets and they had priests, they had the word of God. They managed to hear that and, and watch that laid out before them time and time and time again, and yet somehow still they walked in ignorance. I have been a pastor long enough to not be marveled, to not marvel over that. I am stunned. And how simple the message is, and yet how often it gets missed because it goes in our ears and then it makes our left or a right turn and it gets reconstructed into some American form rather than a biblical form of knowledge. The Jews developed their own salvation, their own standards that looked and sounded very good. In, in fact, it was just vapor. To put it another way, they dug wells that were broken and could hold no water, and the whole time, right there in their midst, is Yahweh their God, who is an ever-flowing spring of living waters, and they missed them. What about you? I do not ask what you claim. I ask you what you love. What do you lean into every day? What is your delight? What is your hope? Your hope before the perfect and searching eye of your Creator. My question to you is do you have zeal, but for the wrong thing? What do you burn for? You can love your country but don't you ever have zeal that overwhelms what you should burn for. Third, in verses 5 through 8, each of us will live and die by some standard. Each of us will live and die by some standard. Embrace that. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, Unfortunately, if you choose to live by that law, he says to the Jew, you will die by that law. All of us are going to die. We're all going to die. And, and it amazes me how often we actually seem to think that if we do this or that, take this, practice this, lose that, whatever it might be, that somehow we can add one second to the life that God has ordained for us. And so we spend massive amounts of time, energy and money fleeing what is destined to catch you. You will live and you will die. The question is by what? Now there's things in that those verses that seem strange to your ears perhaps about the ascending and descending. I'm not going to get into that because it's not central to the message nor to this sermon. I preach many, many sermons, seven years out of Romans. You can go to my, uh, the sermon audio page and you can download and listen to your heart's content, my, my series through Romans 10. I think there's like 12 sermons there. And it'll explain all that. I want you to see that as an individual and as a nation, we all have a standard by which we live, or at least we hope to live. For the Jew, it was the law. That was their source of life rather than God. The law, however, was not a bad thing. The law was given to them, but they were to receive it and to obey it because first they loved and trusted in Yahweh, their God, the true God. But instead, what they did is they abandoned God and just took the law all by itself, outside of its context, and they made it their God, their hope. And what it does is it therefore brings this eventual destruction because righteousness by doing good works must be done perfectly, and they don't, and neither do you. if you look at the Jew casually and externally, you would say they often look like they do follow God and that they love God and they're very zealous for God. It's only when you look a little bit closer that you see that their hope is in their own ability to be good and righteous rather than to simply look to God alone. Well, the church in America and too many individuals in America have turned from the simplicity and clarity of Jesus Christ to other gods. It matters not which side of any aisle you're on. Let me, let me adjust that a little bit. It does if you let it run its course. But for the purposes of the sermon, understand it doesn't matter which side of any aisle you're on. What I want you to first ask is this where does your hope lie? That's all I'm asking you. Where does it lie? And before you quickly answer what it is, think. I'm serious. Think about this. Is your righteousness and purpose bound up in anything other than Jesus Christ? If your righteousness is bound up in anything other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then let me just be very honest with you. You are dead in your sins and under the wrath of God. You're not on the way, you're not almost there. You are dead in your sins. So let me ask you this in a different way. Let me ask it a slightly different way because you, you're saying in your mind, no, 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 that, that's my hope. He's my righteousness. So let me ask in a different way. Are you as bold and confident in your declaration and public submission to Jesus Christ as you are with your political position and statements? And I'm not talking about what you put on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever and and where you just say, I am a Christian. Frankly, the only people who see that are people who agree with you. Long since the people who don't like you have unfollowed you, and you have unfollowed them. You're just talking to yourself. It's an echo chamber. I am saying in your real honest life, not the social media world, in your life, are you as bold and confident about your proclamation and submission to Jesus Christ as you are with your political statements and positions? Which one actually has your hope? I, 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 my heart breaks as I watch Biden supporters who claim Christ, now talking about how things are now going to be good and right and hopeful, and now is the time for healing. But for four years, my heart is broke over Trump supporters who claim the same thing. Who claim Christ, but say that He is the one, by their very words and deeds, they say that He is the one who gives them hope. We have zeal. Oh, do we have zeal. Such overwhelming zeal, but is it with knowledge? With a clear picture of where our ability is found to stand in the presence of our most high God. Too often we have created a false God with a false righteousness in which we pant after and we lose, in the process, the only source of salvation and righteousness before the wrath of God. Whom shall you drape yourself in? It better be Christ and Christ alone. This ought not to be. Four, fourth Fourth exhortation, that gospel in verses 9 to 11, the gospel, therefore, can never be overshadowed or confused with nationalism. The gospel cannot be overshadowed or confused with nationalism. Verses 9 through 11, he says that if you confess your mouth as Jesus with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the main point of this section, you shall be saved. It's the actual main verb. Everything else is controlling, controlled by it. You shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So the gospel is what burdens him. The gospel must always be preeminent reality. We say it with our lips. I'm just saying, but is it in us? It has to be the preeminent reality and basis for our being and living as a Christian Nationalism is very tempting and even laudable. There's nothing bad about nationalism. I love this nation. I watched my father who fought World War II, who watched thousands upon thousands of men's lives destroyed by the Japanese during the war. I watched him weep as he watched our nation make decisions after decisions, and he said, I don't even know why I fought. My heart broke from that man. There's nothing wrong with a sense of nationalism and love of nation. It just has to only go to some point and then stop. It can never be your God, your hope, your purpose. And we see it lived out on every side of the mess that we're in. People say right now that you can't be a Christian if you voted for Biden, and others are saying that you can't be a Christian if you voted for Trump. You can do the same about just about anything right now. The election, the courts, COVID, education, stimulus money, doesn't matter. We are telling people, if you did that, you're not a Christian. We need to take our nation back. That's our hope. That's our purpose. Lock and load. I actually agree that there is going to be some hard decisions that some of us, if not all of us, will make. That there might come a time in which there will be events that will unfold in our nations that we never thought would happen, or maybe we talk about with a cavalier attitude. But when it comes, we will have to make a decision, every one of us. And you will watch believers make a decision on one side or another. These things require careful thought and wisdom. But the moment that those things and those decisions become more important than the gospel, you have become a fool. Paul yearns for his countrymen. He yearns, he's broken, but not that they shake off their foolish ways and get with it, not that they gain their freedom from the Romans. No, that they would find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus alone. That's the starting point and the only proper starting point. The main point of these verses is at the end of verse 9, as I said, you shall be saved. How is one saved? Well, Paul makes it very simple, so if you say, I want to be saved, I think, I'm not sure, I don't know what it means to be saved, let me just put it to you very simply now. He says two points. He says, first, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and he means that. Now, notice that right after all of this is the central promise and the point of the passage, and you shall be saved. So you have to confess Jesus as Lord. Now, what does that mean? Because you say, so I just say Jesus is Lord, and bam, I'm in? No. No, that's not what it means, though. It's more than just saying it out loud. To confess means to be of one mind regarding something, to agree, to affirm, to confess out loud, I know Jesus is Lord. Now, for the Jew, that was very simple. They knew who Lord was. the Lord was. To declare Jesus as Lord is nothing less than declaring him to be Yahweh. And that's exactly what Paul is literally forcing them. He's like, you want to be saved, Jew? Then you, with your mouth, can publicly confess him as Lord. And that sticks in their throat. They can't, or they won't. Because to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess that he is Yahweh, and they are rejecting him as such. He does not shy away in the slightest from the doctrine of Christ's deity and that he is God in human flesh. You want to be saved? Then you will declare with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh, the same Yahweh who was with Moses at the burning bush, the same Yahweh who split the Red Sea, and the same Yahweh of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob confess him. He is Yahweh. And then he looks at you and I, because we're good old Gentiles, and he does the same. And if we lived in the days of Rome at that time, there is one who you must confess as Lord. You can worship any God you want, but once a year you must take a pinch of incense and go into a temple and drop it and confess publicly, Nero is Lord. Paul says, no, Jesus is Lord. Just Jesus. Do you see how rebellious this is? But it's not the rebellion that you see today in our country. That's not what you are seeing with Paul. Paul is saying, "Yo, you need to rebel. Yes, you need to rebel. But you need to rebel against the forces of this darkness of this age. Confess Jesus as Lord. It is a heart and a mind that is utterly convinced that Jesus is God and that he is king and he is your king and you submit yourself to that. And then the second part of you shall be saved is that you must believe in the resurrection. But notice he says you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. All that means is that it is a true deep conviction that something is true. God did raise him from the dead. They all knew that Jesus had been crucified, but they also had to be convinced in their heart that he had been raised by his Father in heaven. Beloved, I can tell it to you this simply if you are capable right now of confessing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. It has nothing to do with your mask mandate. It has nothing to do with your vote. It has nothing to do with anything else you might attach to it. That's simple. What is salvation then? What are we seeking to be saved from? Liberalism? Communism? Socialism? Racism? Conservatism? What? What is it that is in your mind that you need salvation from? Or is it being saved from the greatest enemy of all, you? Your sin. Honestly. The mission of God is what Missio Dei means. Why do we have to have such a weird name, pastor? Because it means something. As the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. Our Lord said, if he is our Lord. Paul went out into the nations, and he did not preach freedom from tyranny, He preached a gospel that stuck you on a pole, dipped in pitch, and then while you're still alive, you would be lit on fire unless you denied Jesus as Lord. That's the one he preached. What do you preach? And what do you believe? You all took the Lord's Supper. What did you confess? And what do you confess? What do you labor over? What do you ache for? What do you press forward with? Do you want people converted to your viewpoint in politics? Or do you want to see sinners saved by Jesus Christ? Beloved, we can love our nation, but we can never put nationalism over Jesus Christ ever. It ought not to be. Five. In verse 12, the only thing that breaks down true national and political walls will be the gospel. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. The simple point, but it's often missed that what really separates many is that they can't figure out what the gospel is and what the gospel affects or whether the gospel effects they are different, but we often make them the same. The gospel is that in Jesus Christ, substitutionary death in our place and his resurrection, that our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, we talk about this constantly, are destroyed. We find forgiveness then in and through Jesus and only Jesus. There's the gospel in its essence. The result of that is that there are natural effects that should follow. But that's not the gospel. A life that's different now because we have now put on the lordship of Christ in our life, and we begin to follow him. That's the effects of the gospel. But the gospel, what saves you are not those things, but Jesus. But we can end up believing the gospel and then get the gospel and these effects mixed up, and they become one and the same, and we shouldn't. As you gather in the name of Christ, you gather in the name of Christ, and only the name of Christ. And when you do that, things begin to change. And that was the great battle in the New Testament. In fact, most people don't know that the book of Romans was written because Paul had to resolve problems between Jew and Gentile. Real problems were going on. And they were far stronger problems than what you think of in liberal conservative worlds but he had to get them to both understand that there comes down a point, it's Christ. He is the issue. When your conversations and your goals and your purposes become driven by the gospel, then things begin to change on both sides. What's driving me crazy is that now, think gospel coalition, that now everything is a gospel issue. I just want to explode. It's like, no, it's not. And strangely enough, in that circle, it all leans a certain direction, doesn't it? But you go into another circle, and it's not that hard to find those circles, and they're leaning in another direction, and they're confusing it. First, let's become one in Christ, and let's grasp that gospel, and then let's go to the Word and begin to live that out. The Jew and the Gentile were literally polar opposites, but in Christ they came together, and so enemies become reconciled, and the walls begin to crumble. You want to see unity, then make it unity in Jesus. You want a nation at peace and preach the gospel until God works in our nation? Not through some political leader, but through the shame and the weakness of the cross. And then finally, in verses 14 to 17, only the gospel goes out when you speak. The go- I didn't say that right. The gospel only goes out when you speak. Let me say that one more time. The gospel only goes out when you speak. He says, how shall we how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? And then he goes on. The point is this. It's very simple. If the gospel is truly the cornerstone of all that we do, because it is inextricably bound up in Jesus, then you and I have to speak about it. The gospel, and only the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Now, my question again to you is, do you believe that, beloved? If you believe it, then who? Now, listen, don't you check out, because I said last point, you can start closing your Bible. Listen, who are you talking to about the gospel then? Right now, in your mind, think about who is it that you're talking to about the gospel. Is the gospel your cornerstone? Is the gospel your hope? Is the gospel the only thing that is the power of God unto salvation? If so, who, beloved, are you talking to? When is your mouth speaking of Jesus and his death and his resurrection? Where is your time and energy bound up in? Think about it. Put it before God. You don't have to speak to me. You before God. Where is your time and energy poured into? What is your burden? Was it that Trump or Biden would be in office? Is it who will fill the next vacant position in the Supreme Court so that they might disappoint us yet again? What is it that you're hoping in? How many of you are even remotely burdened that both Trump and Biden are running hellbound for a Christless eternity? Let's be more honest. That's nice and vague. How many of you are burdened that your coworkers and your friends still have never heard from your lips the word of Christ? Let's just be honest, right? Now, they know all your thoughts on politics. Lord knows they know that. They know your thoughts on your food likes. They know about what movies you watch and so on. You have shared everything you can think of about masks, You share funny emojis. They share your secrets. And you share them there with, and they share their secrets with you. But have you ever once just said, can we talk and spoke the gospel? Have you ever once just asked if they might speak with you sometime after work? and there that you begin the process of offering the gospel? Kindly, gently, but also with the urgency that it's the only thing that matters? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? If you're saying yes, but you're not speaking the gospel, something is broken. It's that simple. You say, Well, I don't possess the skill. Grayson just taught his community group on how to share the gospel. They were given that responsibility. The question is how many of you in that community group are actively now applying that? Not passively applying it, actively. You say, Well, I don't possess the skill. I'm not really that gifted with words. You say, well, I, I just need to learn more first. I tell you that you are deceived and you're lying to yourself. How's that? As a pastor, I need better information. I need to know how to give it better. No, you don't. Beloved, listen to me, please. If you no, if you believed the gospel and you are saved then you know the gospel. And if you say I don't know the gospel well enough to share it then you're not saved. You're not a Christian. It is impossible for you to be a Christian and somehow just not quite grasp the gospel. Something's broken somewhere. You're still trapped in your sin and your guilt. And you need to go back to the last couple points I just preached on and learn. But if you are a Christian and you do know, therefore, the gospel, then it's that simple. But what you and I do is we buy into the lie of Satan that we're not smart enough, good enough, trained enough, gifted with our words, and so we withhold the power of God unto salvation and keep it in ourselves until we feel better about it. And it will never come Ever, You have to open up your mouth and you need to, with stupid words and stumbling speech and idiotic illustrations, give the gospel and watch people mock you for it and lose friends over it and offend people and bring some to faith. What we really mean when we say, well, we need better training is we want somehow to be able to present the gospel to a non-believer and they not be offended over it. Beloved, it is designed to offend. And what you also think is that the power of salvation does not lie in the gospel, but in your presentation of the gospel. That's a lie. It's the gospel. You just got to give it. And then let God do the work. It's the power of God. It's God's power unto salvation. Listen to how Paul, now he's like, man, if I was like Paul, okay, fine. Let's just use Paul and then we'll close this thing off. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5. Don't turn, just listen. 1 Corinthians 2, by the way, it makes me very happy as a pastor to see all of you go to Bible, uh, but this time you're free. Just listen all of you who are afraid. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2-5, through For I determined to know nothing among you, Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's his way of saying the gospel. How was he? And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You say, I'm full of weakness. Well, join your friend Paul. I tremble. Paul does too. I'm not good with words. Paul says, neither am I. But I just don't, just shut up with your excuses and say the gospel. I remember early in my ministry, a guy was giving his testimony. I had the pleasure of leading him to Christ. And his testimony never uttered my name. And I was getting ready to baptize him. And the whole time as he's giving his testimony, I'm like, dude, (laughs) I'm the guy that brought that to you. I say that to my shame. What do I care? And what do you care? Paul doesn't. He only wants one thing: that their faith and their hope rests upon the power of God of salvation in the gospel. That's it. And if you become a fool in the process of doing that, so be it. Beloved, this nation has no hope when the church has forgotten its purpose. And I I, I say this, I don't know how to say it. I hope it doesn't come across wrong. I don't care what any other church does, but Missio Dei cannot lose that purpose. The purpose to call sinners to come to Jesus and only Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. So let me say just a couple of things and we'll close. In 1798, 1798, John Adams wrote this to his officers and it applies to us today. In this letter, he wrote in part, because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, and revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only For a moral and religious people, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He was almost right. Our Constitution is not for moral and religious people. It is made for those who see Jesus as Lord and as their only hope of forgiveness and life. And that, beloved, is what's wrong with the nation. So whatever your words are and whatever your fingers are typing, pull them back. Reorient yourself back to the gospel and make certain that that is your preeminent focus. Let's pray. So Holy Father, as we now let these words settle into our mind, every one of us must make decisions and I pray for grace grace upon every one of these people. I pray for those here who don't know you that perhaps for the first time they heard that they might be saved, that they might with their heart believe, their mouth confess. For every Christian here who is already knowing that they do not speak the gospel, that you might work in their heart to remind them how sweet it was that they once believed and heard How thankful they were that somebody came with them with the words of life. And that out of that, that they might not fear, but they would join the ranks of men like Paul, full of weakness and trembling, and just speak. For all of this, Father, that we would be known not for who we love within this world or our nation, but that ultimately what we are known for is the cross of Jesus Christ and only the cross of Christ. So temper our national spirit, Don't let it go away because we love our nation, but let it be burdened the right way. Bless us, Father, for we are sinners, saved by a great Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.